Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. As many of you know, I was a law enforcement officer for a number of years uh, in North Carolina, and I have arrested many people for many different things. Uh, But I will tell you that I was the police officer that if you just told me the truth, it really was going to go a lot better uh, for you. I've let people go for things that other officers would have definitely arrest for, but I always tried to have a little bit of grace, especially when people were honest. Uh, one of the biggest things today, and, and we all talk about criminal justice reform, and it is definitely needed, but there's not a whole lot of talk about prison reform. I'm a big advocate of when you have served your sentence, when you have done your time, that I don't have any right to look at you any differently because you have served your time. You have gotten through it. It's a lot like when you're a child and you get in trouble and everybody's mad, but then you get over that mad and get through it and it's forgotten about. Unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in when it comes to people who are in prison. And I understand there are some heinous crimes that are committed that, that, They do need to be remembered. They do need to be known about if that person is able to get out of of prison. But so many times uh, we have such a high, high reentry rate into prison. And, And I personally believe that's because we do not do enough to acclimate those people who have spent a lot of time in prison to civilian life. Today, you're going to hear a story about a young man who spent 19 years in prison, 19 years of a 32-year sentence. And we talk a lot about the mental health aspect of people in prison. But I want to encourage you today that we need to remember that our past does not define who we are. Our trauma doesn't define who we are. And if we really believe that for ourselves, then we have to believe that for those who Uh, are re-entering civilian life from prison, that yes, they did this, but what they have done does not define who they are. And we all deserve second chances. We all deserve an opportunity to make our lives better. So I just want to encourage you today that maybe you're somebody who has gotten out of prison. Maybe you're somebody who has uh, done something terribly wrong. Maybe you're listening to this podcast while you're in prison. I just want you to know that your future is not defined by your past, and that today you have the opportunity to decide what your future is going to look like. And if you choose wisely, it can be better than you ever thought. Everybody, Doug Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks. We talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today, I have with me Jesse Crossan. Jesse, it is great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So I I ran across you initially, uh, I think, on TikTok, and um, I was very interested when it said uh, something to the effect of, after 19 years in prison, I still do whatever. And so we'll get into that a little later, but you were in fact incarcerated for 19 years. Is that right? I was. Yeah. So you're from Virginia. Tell me a little bit about growing up. What was that family dynamic like? So I grew up, you know, my parents were both addicts and alcoholics, but they were in recovery by the time I was in a young age. So I saw them, you know, without the substances, but probably still with some of the character defects. And I grew up with, you know, in as much as possible, a loving home where my dad was out and kind of running around and busy and going to grad school. So I didn't see him a lot until I was older. And then finally the dynamics just led to a divorce. You know, they broke up when I was six or seven. And that was, you know, people talk about the the kind of trauma or the, the difficulty for kids. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but there was definitely a shift in me. 
because I remember starting the role became I felt responsible for my mom. I had to take care of her and make sure she was okay. And then I also kind of had to like, you know, make sure that dad liked me and dad approved me. And I had to do things according to that. And it took me a lot of time to realize that that wasn't normal, that, you know, most nine-year-old kids aren't playing bridge with their mother and her friends and aren't like, you know, making sure there's snacks on the table. It was an interesting thing. I mean, there, there wasn't physical abuse. There wasn't, you know, this tremendous amount of emotional abuse that you hear about. It was basically just a, a kind of happy story in a little town in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But but it is interesting uh, how you said you kind of took on the role of being the one to take care of your mother. I think that's kind of human instinct, I think, within the male that when that, I don't want to say alpha, because that could be kind of getting into a toxic masculinity type of verbiage. But when that when the man of the house, I guess you could say, leaves that the other masculine traits of younger kids come forward and, and feel like they need to protect and take care of. Absolutely. So from there into high school, did you say you had a sibling? I have a half sister. Okay. She So she lived with my mother and me part time until I was about five before my parents divorced. Then she left to go live with her mother full time. We had, you know, we saw each other off and on, but we never had a significant or sustained relationship after that. Gotcha. So into high school, what kind of things were you into? What what kind of things did you do? So I was I was really into karate as a kid. I was into dirt bikes. That was all I wanted. In the summer, you know, my parents couldn't afford, you know, traditional childcare. So they would take me to a pool where a bunch of other kids went. We would all get dropped off at the pool. And a lot of kids in that neighborhood had dirt bikes. And I remember for years that was all I wanted. And then my mom managed to find this this used dirt bike that she could afford and gave it to me for Christmas. And it was the best Christmas gift I could ask for. I mean, it was this kind of magical thing. And we lived out in the country. I mean, Charlottesville is a decent sized city, but we were 25 minutes outside the city, so I didn't have anybody in the area. So I got into computers and I got into the, you know, the kind of emerging internet at that time. And, you know, it was on internet relay chat rooms and just trying to connect with the world in the only way I could because I lived down the middle of nowhere. You know, I, I skated for a while, I skateboarded for a while. But then, you know, in high school, it, it kind of shifted and it became about, you know, the people that could be around and the things I could do. But in, in middle school, I had actually, I had never, you know, been drunk or been high. I'd never really engaged in my kind of addictive behaviors because I just wanted to be, I just wanted to fit in. I just kind of wanted to be cool. So I was around it, but I really hadn't engaged in anything. And I got caught with a little bit of weed that I was transferring basically for somebody else. And my dad said, look, I don't trust you to, you know, to be at home. So you're going to come with me to a meeting. You're going to come with me, you know, somewhere and you don't have to participate. You don't have to sit down, but you're not going to be at home alone. So I joined a program of recovery before I had ever been using drugs, before I ever really knew what it was about. So I had this period of like clean time that was really kind of confusing because I didn't really know anything about addiction. And then what that led to was, you know, I kind of had some resentments towards my father for, for a few different things. And I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the program and a lot of hypocrisy in the way people were living. And I attributed that to the program rather than to the individuals. And so I decided when I was 16, like, you know, I, I want to go drink again. I want to go get high. I want to I want to experience all these things that people are experiencing. I want to do what, what kids my age are doing. And so that's what I did. And it, it didn't go very well, as you can imagine. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of group therapy and and the the components that lie in that. I've had clients before that have said things like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and I went to AA, but going to AA made me want to drink more. You know, that that there was that kind of attitude. Even though you hadn't started using, was going to those meetings kind of giving you the the thoughts of maybe you wanted to actually try it other than, hey, I'm in this age group and and uh, this is kind of what kids my age do. I, I would say the best explanation I could give is my dad worked extensively. I mean, he was a substance abuse counselor. He was one even before he got clean himself. And he spent a lot of time with his clients and with his, his kind of like mentees or his sponsees outside. And so what somebody said, you know, do you ever think that maybe you were trying to get his attention by becoming like one of his sponsees? Like maybe if you were getting high, maybe then you could finally get his attention. And I, I don't know that that was as well thought out or developed in my brain as, as possible. Initially, I had found a great sense of community. Like I had found something that I was really looking for and it just kind of wore off and mostly wore off because I wasn't actually participating in any active way rather than because you know, there was anything wrong with the idea. But yeah, I think it was it was more complicated than just liking it or not liking it. Or there were a lot of dynamics that were going on that that made it a, a little more difficult to get a clear idea of what I really wanted or where I wanted to go. Sure. Plus, I, I'm assuming there was a decent age gap between you and the other people in that program or was it an adolescent program no it was it was an adult program yeah 
but I mean, at the same, there was one other person. And really the reason that I stayed and participated probably for, for the, the most part was that there was a girl who was about my age in that program. And I really liked her. I was really drawn to her, but it's, you know, we got clean at the same time. That was 22 years ago and she, or no, 23, God, 20, 23, 24 years ago. And she's still clean to this day. And I, I wasn't, you know, I am now, but it took me a lot of years to get there. And as you can imagine, the arc of our lives, you know, diverged pretty dramatically. Yeah. The, the age difference definitely, definitely contributed to me wanting to be around people, my own, my own age, wanting to make connections, wanting to be able to date girls, you know, those kind of things. So what, what did you start with? Did you start with alcohol or marijuana or what, what did that look like? The first thing for me was marijuana. I was hanging out with a buddy of mine and he went and picked up a bunch of pot and he, it's funny because he actually didn't have a very addictive behavior. Like he picked it up and he picked it up for the weekend and I got it and was like, Oh, I want to smoke this. And I remember sitting on the back porch by myself the first time I got high smoking over and over until, I mean, I couldn't see straight and thinking, you know, maybe my dad was right. Maybe there's an issue here because like they're all inside and they don't seem to be driven to do this. And this feels like, this feels like what I've been looking for my whole life. This feels like an answer. Um, and there was this flash of like, maybe this is a, a bad idea, but I think I probably pushed it down like I pushed everything else down. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never smoked marijuana, smoked it, and I can't stand the smell of it for once. But I had a buddy in college who purposely gave me without knowing um, a gummy bear that was an edible. And let me tell you, I don't personally don't see what anybody enjoys about being high. I mean, I could I could hear colors. It was one of those kind of euphorias. But I guess, you know, in that sense, if you are trying to escape something or feel something other than what you are currently into, I could see how one could be drawn to that constant feeling. Absolutely. My thing was I, I had this constant sense of not feeling like enough feeling like I needed to be validated, feeling like I needed to do more or find somebody who would love me. I was just constantly seeking some kind of outside validation. And what drugs and alcohol did for me was they took that kind of that void and made it quiet for a little while. I felt like I was enough. I felt comfortable. I felt like I could let my shoulders down. And there was this great relief initially because I felt like I was. I felt like I was healing from something rather than recognizing that I was just masking a pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people talk about marijuana being a gateway drug. And, and what I say to that is that actually it's trauma that is the gateway drug. People use drug and alcohol to turn off some response or symptom of trauma. But then it gets to a point of where marijuana or alcohol isn't enough or you use enough that you become physically ill or, or you get you know arrested. Did you ever go past anything, I would say, stronger than marijuana or did you kind of stick in, in the alcohol marijuana drug? Initially, it was alcohol and marijuana, and then I found cocaine, and that was that was it. That was like the supercharger for everything I had because it made me feel like I could drink longer, and I could be stronger, and I could be smarter, and I could be faster, and it really felt like, again, the kind of panacea I'd been looking for, and it was a very brief time between when I found cocaine and when I ended up in prison. It was not a... A, an indirect link. It was a very direct link between how erratic I became, how just kind of quickly I lost myself. Yeah. And so leading into that, tell me about what took place that led to your to your sentence. So I had a, a few buddies. We all were drinking and getting high and we had developed this insane cocaine habit. I mean, I was doing a quarter ounce a day by the time I was arrested. And it was unsustainable because I was trying to sell it and I was trying to sell stuff to do it and I was trying to work to get more and I just couldn't do it. So one of the guys that I was running around with used to work at this restaurant and he said, oh, well, you know, they're really bad people and they employ these illegal immigrants and they, you know, they steal money from them. So they'll have a bunch of money in the house. And so we kind of convinced ourselves that it wasn't some horrible thing to break into somebody's house to steal this money, which obviously is just I mean, again, I look back on some of the justifications that I made to myself and I wonder whether even at the time I believed them or if I was just so desperate and kind of animalistic and out of my mind that I somehow allowed myself to believe them. But so we broke into this house that we thought was empty and it turned out someone was there. Uh, so my co-defendant took and tied her up and it became this home invasion robbery, which was just absolutely, again, horrendous. You know, I've looked back and one of the things I've done since getting out is connected with a lot of people who've been victims of the same crime that I committed to try to have as much accountability as possible to really get a better idea of what the experience they had was to try to understand the full impact of the choices that I made. Um, and then that unfortunately wasn't it. A few days later, uh, I was with another buddy of mine and two guys were threatening his girlfriend and giving him a hard time and saying he owed them money. And anyways, we got into this big argument and I went to meet them 
And then suddenly something clicked. There was a little bit of sense left in my brain. And I realized like, this is not a good idea. Like this is not going to end well. So I left and they chased me. And I remember being angry and being afraid and like not knowing what to do. And we're driving down the road together. And one of them turned around and reached behind him to grab something. And I thought it was a gun. And I, to this day, don't know. I know they found a gun in the car, but so I shot both of them. I shot just out the window of the car and I was screaming and I wasn't looking at them. I was just kind of shooting and, you know, some kind of whatever crazy act. But again, these things that I did, there's, there's no excuse and there's no justification. I committed a robbery. I shot two people. Yeah, I just completely had lost my mind and was in this place of like kind of feral survival, not recognizing all the chaos that I was creating. And, you know, people have asked me, you know, what did you feel when you get arrested? Were you were you scared or I felt relieved? I felt like I was finally no longer a danger to myself or other people. Like I was finally stopped from this this train that I didn't know how to stop before then. Sure. And and I hear that a lot of people who who were caught, they were arrested and and is the relief of of just knowing that. You know, I, I'm in somewhat. I'm safe here. Uh, I'm safe from myself. I'm safe from others. I don't know if we can attribute that to some of the um, reentry uh, into our prisons in America, where people get out and they commit crimes and go back because they feel safe there. And they, as bad as it sounds, that's where they want to be because they know they're safe there. So from that point, I guess. Did you go to trial or was there a plea agreement? How did how did that work? Yeah, so I pled guilty. I mean, I had a wake up call. It took me a while because I was still kind of numb and really unable to process everything that I had done. But there was enough of a wake up call to be like, I really messed up. I really did this harm. And so I did. I pled guilty to everything. And so I went to sentencing and, you know, the the day that I walked into sentencing, my guidelines were from eight to 13 years. And my lawyer had said, look, you're going to get 10 years. It's going to suck. You're going to lose it. But like, you're going to have a chance to get your life back. You just need to, you know, take responsibility to move forward. And I said, yeah, okay. And then the day of trial, they changed the sentencing guidelines to 10 to 16 years. And then at the time of sentencing, the judge sentenced me to 32 years. Hmm. And so on that day of sentencing and you got 32 years, do you remember what kind of thought process went through or were you just kind of dazed and, and didn't know what was happening? Dazed is a good word. I definitely felt like I'd been hit upside the head, but I remember there, there was really this kind of dual reaction. On the one hand, I was like outraged and hurt and scared and angry. On the other hand, there was this voice deep inside of me that was like, that guy finally sees, you know, what a piece of crap I am. Like that guy finally sees how worthless I am. Like finally somebody understands just how broken and empty I am. And so it was this, you know, resistance, but also this kind of acceptance that my deepest fears of my worthlessness and, you know, irredeemability had always been true. And it was strange to have that kind of dichotomy in me because I remember being in the van and going back to the jail and looking out the window and feeling like this is the last time that I'm ever going to see the outside. This is the last time I'm ever going to see the outdoors, just feeling completely lost. Yeah. But in in a weird sense, it was negative validation from the judge that, yeah, what I thought was true. And, and, and but was there a sense of relief there almost that there was validation, even though it was what you thought it was that was scary? Not really. It was I mean, I wouldn't say relief. Uh, there was kind of a sense of acceptance or collapse. I mean, I really I collapsed after that. You know, I had been I had started taking college classes before I went to uh sentencing. I was like doing things to try to focus on the future. I was trying to be positive and I just gave up. I mean, that was really at the point that I gave up. I went back to the, the cell in the jail, we had these little AM FM radios and I just turned the radio on because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to be anywhere. I didn't know what to do. And this song came on the radio, a Dave Matthews song. And I just cried. It just like opened something in me that I had never cried like that before. Yeah. So I, <laughs> it was a shift for sure. Yeah. So how long had you been in jail when you went to sentencing? That was about eight months. Eight months. And how old were you? I was 18. 18. And, and assumably this was your first crime. And so- Yeah, I had, I had stolen beer as a juvenile. Mm -hmm. I had stolen beer from a store, but this is the first kind of serious offense I'd ever committed. Yeah. Well, does it not, well, I was about to say from the outside looking in, 32 years would seem kind of a harsh judgment of sentencing but you were involved in a robbery and shot two people. So was it 32 years without parole or was there eligibility of parole after a certain period of time? Yeah. So Virginia hasn't had parole since 1995. So the actual sentence was 138 years with 106 suspended. So it was 32 active years of incarceration. Gotcha. Okay. 
So now, uh, assumably, were you in a county jail and then transferred to a state facility? Yeah, about a month later, I was transferred to a a reception center, a place called Powhatan. And what was that like? Was it a renewed of this, my my life is over and I'll never see the outside again? I would say actually the opposite. You know, I was able to go outside for the first time in nine months. Mm. Uh, You know, they had wrecked for an hour a day. I'll tell you, when I initially came in, though, it was shocking because it was like the prison movies. It was these long, tall tiers with the cells and the people yelling. And it was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Like, this is going to be real. And I actually found it to be a lot more comfortable and a lot more okay than I expected. But yeah, it was shocking when I first walked in. It was shocking some of the interactions, some of the violence I saw. But like I said, we got to go outside. The food was better. Like there was just everything in my life kind of got better as soon as I got there. So rather than a sense of despondency, there was almost a sense of hope. Like there was a sense of, okay, um, you know, this isn't going to be so bad. As long as I can get outside, as long as I can get to a library, as long as I can, you know, have things to do, you know, maybe I'll find a way to get through this. Yeah. And so, well, let me say it this way. I was a police officer for seven years. And so- I took people to jail. I saw what kind of things happened on the inside of the jail. I've been into a prison, but I've not, you know, seen the inner workings of a prison. But what are some of the things that people perceive about prison that is not true? I think people have the idea that it's a place of kind of constant violence or constant tension or constant. And the difference, I mean, the reality is almost more nefarious because it's most of the time it's boring. Most of the time it's people just trying to make the best of, you know, going through their days and getting on the phone or watching TV or, you know, hopefully working or doing something more meaningful. But then it's punctuated by those, you know, kind of bursts of violence or bursts of just kind of ugly behavior from staff or from prisoners or whatever it is. So, yeah, I guess it's it's a lot less dramatic than people think. But at the same time, it's also kind of more horrifying because of that. Yeah. So while it's not intense, I guess you could say, where would it be fair to say you're not on edge as much as movies would portray a prisoner to be on edge? Yeah. I mean, you can usually tell there's there's kind of a silence and an energy that precedes the things that happen. You know, you're going about walking through the yard, you're sitting in the pod, and all of a sudden you notice that it's silent and you realize, oh, crap, something is about to happen. And sure enough, something happens. Mm-hmm. But most of the day, you don't walk around like that because it's not like just, yeah, it's not nearly as constant as people think. So uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, um, I come across your TikTok page and you did things like after 19 years in prison, I still do this. And you talked about maybe I could say some prison etiquette that that you carried with you. Tell me about some of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of things that are like a matter of personal space. You don't bump into people. You make sure to kind of pay attention to where people are around you. And not, again, out of a sense of somebody's going to come up and stab you, but just because you don't want to bump into people. Uh, you know, you're really polite with with uh, kind of shared spaces. Like if you sit down at a table, you don't just plop down. You don't drop your hands on it. As far as the etiquette, I mean, really, it's just you kind of speak to people politely. You don't look people in the eye unless you're trying to get their attention. There's a big thing about that. Uh, You don't look in people's faces. Like when you're walking down the tier, you don't just look in their cell. You don't look at what they're doing. You kind of try to mind your business. I don't know. As as far as etiquette, in some ways, it's things that that I'm having trouble adjusting to on the outside because they do seem like they make good sense. I've actually got a lot of comments on TikTok where people have said that. They've said, that sounds like a great idea. Like, I really wish my neighbors would stop staring in my yard or stop staring in my house or stop Mm -hmm. staring at my face when I'm sitting in the yard. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's just that made me kind of magnified a little bit to where some people are really petty. But for the most part, it's just the idea of kind of recognizing that we have a limited space and limited opportunity for privacy. So to just really respect that to the utmost degree. Yeah. And so... Being in in prison for 19 years, I'm sure that you probably had an occurrence where someone was sentenced there. They first got there and they had the attitude that they were going to run the place or that it was going to be about them. What kind of experience would they get coming into that facility? When you say that, I think of one guy. So we didn't have we don't have a huge gang problem in Virginia, but we do have gangs and they have what they call trits or (laughs) set tripping where people will say, you know, my set needs to run this or my set needs to be like my subgroup, the gang needs to be in charge. And I remember we had a guy show up and go on the yard and say, everybody's going to represent my set and this is what it's going to be. And everybody was just kind of looking around. And even I was on the outside and I could hear the discussion that was happening. And I just was kind of wondering, well, is this going to go or is he going to be able to pull this off? And like eight guys dragged him to the ground and stomped his face. It. It was not a good reception for him. It wasn't a particularly pleasant thing on the outside. That's probably the most concrete example of what it was. It was really just kind of about uh, 
and there were people that I want to say there were people that did that. I mean, I, I saw guys who were in pods who would say, this is my phone and nobody's going to touch it. And some people might might stand up to him or some people might basically talk to him to the side and he would let them use it. But they did. They would bully a lot of people. I mean, you had individuals that do it, but you didn't have a lot that could get away with it because they, there weren't a lot of people that were that feared or that were that respected, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And so how often did you find someone that that came to prison that was genuinely sorry and humble about what they had done and were headstrong of that they were going to improve their life while they were in prison and that they were going to to better themselves? Okay. So I talk about the um, the triage set, and I'm not sure that it's exactly a third and a third and a third, or if that's just kind of a convenient metric, but I'd say it's about a third of the people that I've ran into in prison have realized, hey, I did something really wrong. I don't want to live like that anymore. And I've got to find a way to you know, make it better and prepare for living a good life on the outside. The second third are people who are kind of either on the fence or but are reachable, but you know, may not yet know what tools they need or how to get those tools or but at least are at least moving in that direction. And then I found a third that were just really unwilling to recognize they had done anything wrong or unwilling to change or just really not in a position to take any responsibility at all. And so, uh, as you know, Doc Talks is is a is all about mental health, everything mental health, and of course, we have a mental health crisis in the world. I think we could we could even say it was a, a is a pandemic within America uh, within mental health. How was how was mental health addressed or approached in prison? Every prison has a mental health department. And I was really grateful for that because wherever I went, I always found at least one staff member who was really good, who really cared, who was there for the right reasons, who dealt with all the BS from staff and prisoners and showed up every day. There was always at least one. And at at one point, I remember at one point at Buckingham, there were actually three staff members that were like that. And I thought it was just unbelievable because I'd never seen where all three people in the department actually were willing to show up. But the problem we ran into was just a lack of resources. And like you said, I mean, it's it's an epidemic. So we had some very seriously mentally ill prisoners, and there are a few facilities in Virginia with mental health wards or, or buildings, but for the most part, you just have seriously mentally ill individuals kind of mixed into the crowd. And these are guys that they can't stop from hurting themselves, cutting themselves, hurting other people, touching themselves, doing these wildly inappropriate things, just acting in, in ways that you know garner a lot of attention. And so probably 90% of the mental health staff's time was taken up with this 5% of the, the population. So 10% of their time is available for the other 95%. So even the best people who show up and work and stay late and do whatever, just don't have the resources to provide the services that people need. Sure. We hear some of people who attempt or commit suicide while in prison. Uh, Was that something that you experienced while you were in prison for 19 years? Yeah. I mean, we had a couple guys kill themselves. We, I mean, my own story was I got sober because, as I said, I had kind of given up uh, once I got locked up, once I got 32 years, once I just I felt like there was no future. And then as I kind of like did this, this two steps forward, one step back, I would say, you know, I'm moving in the right direction. I need to change. And then I would realize I still have 25 years left or I still have 20 years left or, I, you know, I lost my dad while I was in prison. So I kind of kept running into these justifications to you know, go ahead and start getting high again or go ahead and start wasting my time again or go ahead and whatever it was. Uh, but I woke up one day, you know, I've got a little over five years sober and I woke up one day and I wanted to kill myself. I realized that I was not going to make it through that day unless I made some kind of serious change. And that was a result of drug use. That was a result of a really unhealthy relationship with a woman that was very well intentioned, but just, you know, all her sick parts played with all my sick parts and it was just not a good place. Um, and that was when I realized that I needed to make a change. That was what got me clean. That was what, you know, put me on the path that I'm on now. And I'd kind of been on that path. I'd had the intention of being on that path, but it really shifted that day. And I've talked to a number of guys who had the same experience. They either had a conversion experience or they started, you know, doing something kind of religiously. Something shifted really dramatically because they just realized they didn't have the will to live anymore. And so that day that you had that that experience, what was it that turned everything around for you? So I had been meditating for about five years at that point. I had gotten into this meditation practice in a lull of getting high before I was, you know, kind of recommitted to it. And so I'd been meditating daily for five years. And so that was really the moment that I was sitting on the pillow. I was looking at the wall and I was just feeling this, this sense of like pain. And I, I remember this pain from when I was a kid. It was a pain that I couldn't escape or I couldn't describe or I didn't know what to deal with. It was what had driven me to, you know, be a people pleaser, to drink in the first place, to do all those things. And it just felt like it was going to overwhelm me. It just felt like it was going to destroy me. And then all of a sudden, I, I remember feeling like there was space. And I, 
you know, people talk about, uh, you know, in the 12 steps, the idea is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. In that moment, that was the experience that I had. I don't know what it was. I don't know how to describe it. But there was this sense of space. And the other one I, I go back to is Victor Franklin, Man's Search for Meaning. He talks about, I reached out for God from the Narrows and I found him in space. And I had just read that book maybe a year before. And that line just immediately popped into my head because I had this amazing experience of, for the first time in my life, feeling this pain that I'd been running from for years and suddenly feeling like I had the space to, to hold it, to be there, to be okay. I really don't know how to describe that. I don't know what that was. You know, I've never tried to put words to it, but it uh, it was the experience that shifted what I did. And I got, and strangely, I, the person that I contacted for help, my first sponsor when I got clean was the first person I ever got drunk with when I was 16, when I decided to leave the program. And I just reached out and just incrementally made all these changes. You know, I, I had made some changes since I've been locked up, but it really was completing that process to saying, I need to change everything in my life to a different direction. And that's what happened. And and so do you continue with that same piece of space today, or is it something that comes and goes? It comes and goes. I mean, it's definitely not a constant. But what I found is it's about consistency. It's it's about, you know, the same idea as lifting weights or having a healthy diet. You don't do one push-up and then suddenly feel strong, but with the consistency of practice, with the consistency of meetings and meditation, uh, I find myself in a place where I feel like I have space to deal with whatever comes up and have the equanimity to face whatever's going on without losing my cool, without losing my perspective. Is it as easy or as accessible to drugs and alcohol in prison as most perceive that it is? Yeah, it is. How does that hinder people who, like you, have this, I'll use the word epiphany, that, okay, I can get clean, I can be sober, I can do this, but have such easy access to to those items. I mean, it's, you know, some people I found have really made a shift, and it doesn't matter what you put in front of them, there's nothing they're going to do differently. But the vast majority, and every time before that, that I got clean or that I stopped, it was kind of a temporary one, or I had a, a couple excuses or a couple reasons that I would, you know, maybe make an exception or, and as long as there are any reservations like that, it being there all the time makes it almost impossible to stop. It takes a complete break or it takes, you know, being lucky enough to be sent somewhere else. I knew a couple guys that were so strung out that they would catch charges to go to the hole just to be able to get sober. And then they would be mad when they could get drugs in the hole. I mean, it was, it was such a bad situation because <laughs> these two guys, I remember they asked me because this was, I don't know, it was probably about six months after I'd gotten clean and I had talked about it. And these two guys came and they said, look, man, we're really strung out. We're really trying to stop. Will you help us? Like, will you walk to chow with us? Will you keep people away? Like when they try to bring us something, will you tell them no? And I said, look, I'm, I'm happy to help, but I, I can't be with you 24 seven. Like something else has to happen here. Like, do you want me to talk to mental health? Do you want us to try to get you put in the hole for a while? Like, what can we do? And they said, no, no, we just need you to, to walk with us. And so the first day I actually agreed, I said, all right, well, I'll walk to Chow and I'll try to make sure. And literally as I'm walking to Chow, one of them bolts off in the other direction and goes, you know, it just, it was such a bad situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, on that hand of things, they have to be the one that makes the the active decision, because, I mean, you're definitely not going to knock some drugs out of somebody's hand who is offering it to someone and, you know, expect to leave with all your teeth or something like that. Yeah. So what kind of things did you do while in prison? Did you continue your education? Uh, were there programs that you worked in? Yeah, I did. So um, I got a bachelor's degree while I was locked up. It took about 15 years. Ohio University has a great correspondence program for for prisoners. Um, it's just, it's, you know, very costly. There's no financial aid. There's no, you know, support. There are no loans. So it took a number of years to both go through the logistics, which is writing everything by hand and mailing it off and also just be able to come up with the money. And again, most people don't have that opportunity. I was just really blessed with a mother who was willing and able to support me in doing that. You know, I, I volunteered. I, I was in a mentor position, both officially and unofficially for years. Officially, it was in a mental health program called the Shared Island Management Program, where we did a lot with uh, seriously mentally ill individuals, people who are, were at risk of predation, were dealing with medical issues, kind of a special subset of the population where we tried to provide structure and programming and support. And the mentoring was a big part of that because, as I said, the mental health staff, even when they were great, just didn't have the time or resources. So we were kind of converted into the, the substitute resource, even if that was just as a conduit to say, hey, this guy's got a really serious issue. We can't handle this. We need you to handle that. You know, I, I tutored guys, you know, I, I worked in a different, bunch of different positions. Uh, I got a journeyman's electrical license while I was in. Yeah, I just, I stayed as busy as possible. And like I said, you know, even those times before I really had a complete break, I would do a lot. I would work on a lot. I would be really helpful. And then I would just kind of fall back into that hole. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that really is the key to any mental health condition is that you continue doing 
and and don't isolate yourself and and recluse. What did you get your bachelor's degree in? So at Ohio University, you have a specialized studies degree and you get to design your own degree. So I got it in existential psychology. Okay. Why? I was trying to understand myself. I was trying to understand how I had gone so wrong, you know, how I had, you know, made so many mistakes, how I had made so many bad decisions. And also, you know, what was wrong with me? Why was I hurting my whole life? What was I running from? Like, how could I be better? What What was the hope for the future? Really just trying to get a better understanding of that whole experience. Yeah. I used to hear a lot the people who go to school to be therapists are one of two types of people. They're the ones that either need therapy or want therapy. Yeah. And, and that's, that's when we go, but there is this stigma that I have, I have found, uh, even through TikTok and Instagram of that people believe that if you have, are suffering from a mental health diagnosis, that you cannot work in mental health. And, and I don't know where anybody got that idea, but that is so untrue. I actually think therapists who suffer from mental health conditions make better therapists than, than those who don't. How did you relate in prison to people who may have had life sentences that wanted to get clean or, you know, had had done things considerably worse than what you had done. What was their motivation to get clean? What? How did you try to motivate them? I always said that, you know, there's an immediate return on how we live. You know, sometimes we just don't know yet. So for the guys, and, and they were always the ones that impressed me because, you know, I always had a release date. I always had an opportunity, but there were guys in there that, you know, had a smile on their face, that were at peace, that were just like, okay, that were never getting out of prison. And that always boggled my mind. But for the guys that were doubting and wondering, what I would say is, you know, this gets so much better. Like life really does get so much better when you take away this kind of mask that you're using to cover it all up. You start cleaning the mess up and you get to start living. Because that was always in the way of living for me. And when I shared, you know, these are the experiences that I'm having. And these are the kind of promises that are being fulfilled in my life. And this is the way I'm experiencing things. And I've never experienced that before. And it's because I took the drugs and alcohol away. And it's because I started taking accountability. And it's because I started making amends. You know, some people would be scared away and say, that sounds freaking terrible. Why would I want to do a, you know, a character defect list? That sounds like a uh, but other people would say, look, if it makes things better, like I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of, you know, spending all my money and then wondering why I'm going hungry at the month. Yeah. So it was just it was a matter of kind of sharing my story. It wasn't I don't think there's any right reason or right way. And I definitely didn't judge the guys who didn't because I regularly had guys like the two I was talking about who came around and said, hey, I really want to get clean. And then the next day they would say it again. I say, well, let's try. And when they were serious, I would try. And when they weren't, I would say, you know, enjoy yourself. Just don't bring that crap around me. Mm hmm. And, and, you know, for somebody who is, who is really struggling, it must be a very, I'll use the term hellish situation because there are things that you could do if you were on the outside to remove yourself from those temptations where uh, in prison you don't have that opportunity. The opportunities for education that you, that you mentioned, you said they were very costly. Is there not any type of program within the prison system that would uh, enable you to do those things at a reduced cost or at no cost? Now, supposedly, and this, if it has happened, it's happened since I've been out or since I graduated, they're going to reinstate the, uh, the Pell Grant, which allows people to go to college for free. But as it is in prisons, they have a GED program. So if you didn't get a high school degree, you can go and study and get your GED. And then a lot of prisons have vocational programs. And I was really lucky because the prison that I went at had really good mental health staff and had really good vocational teachers. Because the biggest issue with the vocational thing is you'll have an electrician's class or a flooring class where you don't ever touch tools or you don't ever touch wire or you don't ever actually do any flooring. You're just doing it out of book. So you get out of prison with this certificate saying you did this and then you go on the job and you can't handle a pair of pliers and the boss looks at you like, I'm not going to hire this guy. You know, who does he think he is? But again, I went to a place that had really amazing teachers, really amazing staff who were willing to help. And so one of the issues they have as far as like vocational education is you're only allowed to take a trade per level. So you have a security level one through five. So the first person I was at was a level four and I, I didn't, I put in for a trade, but I didn't, I wasn't able to get in because you had so many people with life sentences and long sentences. They somehow got in before. Then the level three, I took, I put in for every trade that was there. I took a trade and then they said I wasn't eligible to take another one. So I was trying to figure out, well, what can I do to, you know, get my electrical license or get something and have some kind of preparation for the future. So I had to basically pay somebody to get a job on the maintenance crew. And then by being on the maintenance crew, I was eligible for the hours I needed for the apprenticeship. So even though I had never taken the electrical class, 
class, I managed to kind of like backdoor my way into the electoral apprenticeship. And that was how I got my license. And unfortunately, you do. You have to kind of like play the system or play these games to be able to get the advantages you want because they're just not widely available. Uh, I know that the Pell Grant is available, but you can't be a convicted felon and get the Pell Grant. Now, I personally feel like, which which I'm a big proponent of, you know, once you've done your time, once you have, have paid your sentence, that I should not look at you as a felon anymore, that you are, you get a do-over, if you will. And and so, I, I, I mean, even think about voting, that you can't vote uh, as a convicted felon. You can't own a firearm, which that may be a good thing in some cases. But then I think about these people who are in prison for amounts of marijuana, and it wasn't a violent, you know, it wasn't a violent act. They were just simply in possession and how they are sitting in prison. And now possession isn't illegal and you can actually, you know, get a get a medical certificate or license to be able to possess it where these people probably would have been able to do that had that been available. What are your thoughts on that uh, re-entry into civilian life, if you will, of preparing you for for those kind of things? Okay. Well, I mean, that's a really kind of multifaceted uh, topic. So one of the things I'm really grateful for is Virginia has made a lot of steps. So I was able to get my civil rights restored. It used to be that you had to be off probation, had your fines off. You used to do all these different things. And under the recent administration, it was just made that as long as you are out of prison, if you apply, you can get your civil rights reinstated. So I have the right to vote again. I have the right to serve on a jury, which for generations and generations was impossible for a lot of people who, you know, I had $5,000 in court costs, fines and restitution when I got out that I took a loan out to pay off so that I could because I thought I needed to do that before I could get my rights restored. But it turned out I, that wasn't the, the case. You've talked about how uh, psychologists with lived experience or therapists with lived experience, you know, can provide a greater service. You know, I'm looking at going to grad school and I want to be licensed. I want to be an LPC. But Virginia has what they call barrier crimes, which if you've been convicted of a number of felonies, you're not allowed to be licensed. Or if you are, you need a special exception by the board. So the idea of using my lived experience as well as, well as clinical experience to help other people being limited by the the past that allowed me to have that lived experience seems really kind of backwards. But then as far as preparation, I mean, there's just a tremendous lack of preparation. So when the current director of the Department of Corrections for Virginia came to Virginia, he had this proposal that, you know, we're going to take people for reentry and we're going to teach them skills and we're going to teach them technology and we're going to get them a driver's license. They're going to leave prison ready to work, ready to go, ready to and none of that has happened. Mm. The reentry programs are a joke. You you have a, a community meeting once a day. You do a conga line, and then you call that training. There are a couple classes. There's one CBT class that's that's actually fairly like um, evidence based, but the vast majority of it is just not realistic. There's no emphasis on on transition as far as technology. You got guys getting out of prison after 30 and 40 years who've never used a cell phone or never used a computer, who have no idea how to fill out a job application because they've never used a phone or a computer. I mean, it just there's a total lack of preparation, not even to mention the lack of treatment that would have to go into someone being emotionally and mentally prepared to get out of prison. Just the even job skills and logistics aren't there. Uh, so there's a real kind of set to fail mentality where guys get out of prison unless they've been entirely uh, lucky, as I have, to have the amazing support and guidance of people and driven. Uh, they're not going to have what they need when they get out of prison and they're going to stumble and they're going to struggle and they're oftentimes going to reoffend and go back to prison. Yeah. So I think we can both agree that there not only needs to be criminal justice reform, but there needs to be prison reform. Absolutely. And more so now I see more of the for-profit prisons that are popping up and it's just easier for the state to just have, you know, contract out to these for-profits. There's just so many things that need to be corrected, but I don't know that there's just any one solution that would fit every problem. It is something that just needs to be looked at. And I think that's the problem is that we don't have a lot of people looking at it and, and trying to use brilliant minds, even those people who are in prison that could say, hey, if we looked at it this way, if we could do it this way, then maybe it would work. So tell me about the day or the time that you come to find out that there was a possibility of you getting out before your sentence was over? One of the things that, that a mentor of mine told me was that, you know, in any situation, we have to do everything we can, but that we can't control the result. So back in 2019, I filed a petition for clemency, which is a request to the governor saying, hey, 
I am guilty of all the charges. I did this. I'm just asking for clemency. I'm asking for mercy, essentially. And I did it not because I thought it would work, but because I knew that I had 10 or 11 or 12 years left on my sentence. And I felt like if if I do this, at least I'll know I've done everything I can and I can let go of the results because I'll know it wasn't my fault that I was staying in. I've done everything I could. So I put this in and I listed all the reasons that I'd been sentenced to twice the high point of the, the guidelines, that I was you know barely 18 at the time of the offense, that I was, you know, all these different reasons, all the work that I'd done, the degrees I had earned, the guys that I'd mentored, you know, but again, thinking, okay, at least I'm putting this in, it probably won't work. And then, you know, it kind of grew. All of a sudden I started getting, you know, letters from people who said, Yeah, I saw your mom posted something about your clemency, and I wrote a letter to the governor. And then all of a sudden somebody said, Yeah, by the way, I talked to my local delegate and you know, I talked to this guy, and oh, by the way, you know, I know somebody who went to school with the, the chief of staff. So I, you know, I talked and all of a sudden I was like, Wow, maybe this is this is real. So in February of this year, uh, my mom contacted me. We had an uh, email system in prison, a JPay email system, and she said, Call me, call me, call me. That was all she said. And I said, Oh shit, I don't know what's going on. So I, I called her that night and she said, Jesse, like they, they're going to look at your petition. They said, you're on the top of the pile. Like they could make a ruling this year. You could find something out. And she was so happy. And, and Courtney, who's the, the woman in my life, who at that point actually wasn't a, a significant other, but was just a friend, you know, was convinced. They were just convinced I was going home. And I was thinking, you guys are really optimistic. I don't I don't know if this is going to work out. Like, I'm not sure what you're thinking. Uh, but so then it went on and they they had to do this parole interview process where they they interviewed me. And basically they said, just look, just don't lie. Like all we're trying to do is find out if what you're saying is the truth. So I, I talked to them and then uh, strangely enough, so August 16th, which is actually my clean date, which I thought the best thing about that day was that I could celebrate being clean for a number of years. And I was really happy that morning. They actually let somebody out on clemency. So it was like 6 a.m. And, and, you know, they had all these news trucks and it was a big deal. And, we, you know, we found out it because I worked in medical. So I went to medical and people were telling me and I was like, oh, man, maybe like one day that could happen to me. Like, I don't want to get my hopes up, but maybe whatever. I went back to the pod and I, I, we worked out inside because I think I had to get on the phone at, at rec time or something. And so I was sweaty and I didn't know what I was doing. And the counselor comes in and she she's like, give me the finger, like, come here. And it's always a terrifying moment because a lot of times if you get called to the counselor's office because, you know, somebody that, you know, died or something bad has happened or, you know, but she didn't seem upset. So I was thinking like, okay, I don't know. And I walked in and the speakerphone, the phone was off and the speakerphone was on. And they said, uh, Mr. Cross, are you sitting down because you're leaving Coffeewood today? And I just like hit a knee and choked up and started crying because it was two in the afternoon on a day that, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. And there was this whirlwind where I went and they took and I had to fill out paperwork and I had to, I just gave all my stuff away except for a few books and pictures, but I had to like pack that stuff up as my official property. And an hour and a half later, I walked out of prison and gave my mom a hug and, and I was sitting there hugging her. She said, no, no, we're getting out of here. Like get, let's go now. And I walked out the gate and then we drove down at the end of the road and, and Courtney, who had, you know, be, become really significant in my life at that point, you know, she, she had only had half an hour's notice. And it was 45 minutes to the prison. So we pulled over in some farmer's driveway right next to the prison. And I met her in a cornfield because we'd been talking for years, but we'd never been able to like actually meet face to face. It was the most surreal and amazing day of kind of transformation and kind of hope. And yeah, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. And so you're, you're out of prison and your home assembly and do you have that sense of well what do i do now yeah there was so there was a really overwhelming thing so the first day uh you know by the time we got back to charlottesville it was five o'clock and so i didn't have i had the clothes on my back and i had a bank card that it had the money that was in my account and that was all i had i didn't have clothes i didn't have anything i didn't know what to do and so we went to Costco thinking like, this is a great idea. We can get everything we need. And I started panicking the moment we walked in the door because I'm in this huge space surrounded by people, uh, not knowing what's going, like, I just did not feel comfortable at all. And then we start looking through things. And I find like, okay, socks and boxers. Like I know how to do that, but then they have more than one type of socks and boxers. And it was, I haven't been able to choose that in 19 years. And then it was clothes and well, I just need jeans. Like, why do they have three different types of jeans? I just need jeans. And then my mom said, oh, well, we need to get you this. And we need, and I just started like, everything got really, really close and really, really loud. And I just couldn't, I, I had a panic attack. I couldn't take it. And I told her like, we need to leave. And I basically cracked up in Costco, you know, two hours after I got out of prison. Uh, and then went home and, you know, they were saying, oh, well, you should do this. And, you, and I just I couldn't process. I was just still in this kind of state of shock. And really, the only time I was able to relax that night was everybody went to sleep. and I didn't sleep for three days. I was just running on adrenaline. At midnight, I just gave up on trying to sleep. And I went upstairs and I walked out on the porch and it was quiet. 
And I was alone for the first time in as long as I can remember. And it was just, it felt amazing. And I hadn't eaten anything all day because, you know, my stomach was bad. And remember, they said they had ice cream in the kitchen. So I went and got a pint of ice cream from the fridge. And I sat on the porch in the dark and ate a pint of ice cream and felt like everything went away for the first time in, you know, 19 years. I felt comfortable. I felt relaxed. I felt it was beyond description. So you've you've just been out of prison now for what, four months? Almost four months, yeah. Yeah. And so what are you doing now as far as work? Are you doing electrician work or are you wanting to go back to school? No. So, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. So I had a couple options. I had applied for an electrical job at a local university, which has a great, uh, a great program, great benefits, great everything. And then I had a similar job come up where I'm working online. I load uh, for a company that sells products on Amazon, but this one has a lot more flexibility that I can take an hour in the middle of the day to do a podcast or do something else. So even though the benefits aren't quite as good, I decided to do this with an eye towards looking at grad school. So I'm doing this. Uh, I, I'm doing, you know, I have a bunch of other kind of like side gogs. I have like 1099 jobs where I do like home inspections for roofing. I do different things to try to like, I wouldn't have as many options as possible. Let me put it that way. But, you know, with the winter, a lot of that stuff is shut down. But yeah, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how can I afford to go to grad school? What does it make sense to do? How can I have time? Because I went from having, you know, a job that took up four or five hours a day and the rest of my day being free to, you know, maybe getting five or six hours of sleep at night because I get up in the morning and I'm going to work and I'm spending time with my girlfriend and I'm going to the gym and I'm doing a podcast and I'm doing a TikTok and and really trying to figure out how to fit everything into my life and, and really not understanding how people do it. Yeah. It, it it is it gets overwhelming. I'll just put it that way of trying to keep up, and I just I just can't imagine in in your situation how to keep everything organized in a way that just isn't so overwhelming that you can't function. And, and I'm sure that there's probably days where you get to that point of where you just have to shut it all down and and take some space. So if you could tell one thing to anybody that is in prison right now, what would that thing be? I would say that your past does not have to define you and that wherever you are, you can find the ability to heal yourself and help the people around you and that the reward for that will be far better and far greater than anything you ever experienced in pursuit of whatever it was that led you to prison. Absolutely. I would solidify that by saying your past does not define you as opposed to doesn't have to. It doesn't. And and specifically for those who are in prison, I mean, they are they are reaping the consequences of their action. But as I said, I'm, I'm big on, okay, you've paid the price. I don't look at you that way anymore. And so I would, I would encourage them to say, uh, you're not who you used to be and you don't have to let who you used to be define who you are. I like that. All right. Uh, Jesse, I appreciate you taking your time today to be with us here on Doc Talks. Um, where can our listeners find you on social media if they, they wanted to find you? Uh, the easiest thing is on TikTok. The, my handle is second underscore chancer, C-H-A-N-C-E-R. Uh, there's a link on there to Facebook and Instagram and all those, but that's the one that I probably have the most connection with people. All right. We'll make sure to put that at the uh, in the description of this podcast so you can find Jesse. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at the.brian.com. All of my social media links are at the bottom of that website. Of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can check out all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Jesse, once again, thank you for, for being with us and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, everybody, we'll see you next time.